There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was Sunday, September 24, 1995, and a full Sydney football stadium was the setting for a game in many ways the end of an era. As the 14th and final time the Winfield Cup trophy would be awarded, it was to close the door on a period of enormous growth considerable success and never-ending controversy. The big question, however, was what came next. With that grand final at the time considered to be the last of its kind before the beginning of Super League and a weekend ARL competition in 1996. Fittingly, on the field that day, there was to be one entrant from either side of the war which had cast a shadow over every aspect of that Premiership season. On the Super League side, however, it was a team that nobody expected. This is the last Winfield Cup, the 23rd chapter of the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, wonderful. How are you? I can't really put it into words, my emotions right now, as we have reached the last chapter of this season of our in-depth investigation. It's uh, It's been a long road to get here. It's like one of those Rob DiCostello ultra marathon. Who was that old bloke used to run those? Cliff. Uh, Cliff Young. I feel like Cliff Young on the first leg of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's awesome. What a wonderful first installment this has been. Obviously, though, we're nowhere near the end of the story, so at the end of this chapter, we'll let you know what we have in store uh, in upcoming months. But for the moment, let's get into it. This is our recap of the 1995 season, so it brings us full circle to where we started with our 1994 chapter. And I thought, when I was putting this season together, I thought I'd be really clever and plot out a chapter that was a season recap where we didn't mention Super League at all. And I just focus on everything else that happened outside of Super League, uh, which was so naive and stupid of me because (laughs) (laughs) there there is literally nothing that Super League didn't touch in this season. So I I think over the course of covering the season in a Super League context, we've hit on basically anything that happened anyway. Yeah. Uh, But do you have any non-Super League memories of this season? Do you know what? It's kind of like a lost season for me in some respects. Even though I was going to a lot of games and everything, and I loved the game, I was, what, it must have been year 10 by then. So I was sort of, I was more into socializing than I'd ever been before. And like rugby league took slightly more of a back seat. So, and then with the Super League dramas and after 1994, my favorite season ever, it just wasn't quite the same for me. Yeah, I'm kind of the same in that I can't untangle my memories from the work I've done over the past year. It's This really has destroyed my brain, this research. So uh, <laughs> one little exercise I thought we'd do to get started was to just put the season in its historical context. And I think this season can be viewed as some kind of bridge between the, you know, the 80s kind of era, even though we're in 1995, I think in our 1994 recap, you mentioned that 
all these players were essentially products of the 80s, even though they were playing in the 90s. So I do think this season forms a kind of bridge between two eras uh, heading really into the, the NRL. And so one thing I th- thought illustrated that was uh, a little exercise I did, which was to go through uh, every issue of Big League that year in 1995, uh, like we did with our Rugby League Week Q&A in 1994. Big League had something similar, except it was called A Walk Down Memory Lane. And basically it asked you know former greats three questions. It was the same three questions every time. It was the best try they ever witnessed, the best try they ever scored, and the best player they'd ever seen. Uh, on the last one, it was the usual suspect, so nothing too interesting to talk about. But something really stood out for me when I was looking at the tries listed as the greatest try they'd ever seen, which was a try that Eric Groth scored against Canterbury in the 1983 semifinals. This had, it wasn't unanimous, but by far and away, this was the was most almost. popular choice. There were eight players who picked this as their try, and it was spoken about almost as, oh, of course, the Eric Groth try. Well, I mean, I went and watched it on YouTube after reading that. Um, I actually think some of his other tries were better. There was a, like a length of the field one he had where he palmed off a whole bunch of people, I recall, was actually better than that one, I thought. Well, as I was reading through these now, I think there are a couple of people that maybe were talking about that try because I, I did see one, John Quayle, at least, mentioned that one, you know, running down the sideline 80 metres. But the majority were the try where he basically ran diagonal across field, uh, probably from about 40 metres out or so, bumped off seven or eight players on the way to score a try. Very impressive try, but Great try. maybe it was just the build-up of seeing all these players talk about it. But I had the same feeling where I watched and I'm like, oh, I've, I've seen better than that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he was just such a beloved player for his body of work that it got more of a sentimental vote, that one, I think. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, not to disparage the try or obviously uh, Eric Groth as a player. But it just reminded me of when I was a kid, because another try that got mentioned a couple of times was Steve Gearan's try in the 1980 Grand Final, where he caught a bomb on the full and scored, which I remember as a kid, that was always the one that was talked about, almost like that wasn't in dispute as the best try. Yeah. Well, the one that made me smile the most was Rex Mossop. His greatest try ever saw was George Piggin scoring one from 25 metres out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if that's not two hard men looking after each other. Yeah, no way. <laughs> uh, but it's funny when you think of the tries that get talked about to this day. You know, like, I think Benji Marshall's flick pass seems to be that gold standard, the one that will always get referenced first. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think it's the best try. Maybe it's just the occasion. It's got two prongs, that one. It's got an awesome um, flair and it's got the grand final occasion. Yeah, exactly. But putting that in its context, we're now further removed from that try than players in 1995 were from the Eric Groth try in 1983. Yeah. So it really was a very close link to that period before. If we're looking at great tries in the modern context, like... Almost every week you'll see a try as good as those two now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sure someone will comment that Eric Groth would have loved this corner post role. <laughs> well, I mean, wingers these days. <laughs> but another uh, aspect of the season that really made me feel that we were coming to the end of an era and into another one was Tommy Rodonicus's arrival at West's. Yeah. I think even by 1995 standards... 
he and that club were an anachronism. You know, we mentioned him single-handedly building their gym uh, when he arrived. <laughs> well, I mean, in the preparation notes, it really made me laugh that him and Wayne Ellis, his assistant, were going to be in the UK for the 95 World Cup and they were going to go and visit a lot of soccer clubs and and various clubs over there to get all the latest uh, techniques. It's like, yeah. well, I'm not sure they're building their own construction work <laughs> in Premier League. but uh, And just that really uh, heartwarming kind of uh, throwback, you know, he enforced that all players had to come early to watch reserve grade and they were out in the community like regularly it's funny because I, I read it in my research but i remember this at the time uh tommy radonicus on the back of a truck with a megaphone yeah driving down the, the main street of campbelltown so cool. urging everyone to come out to the, <laughs> the footy that night how can you not love the guy exactly and and that campaign actually worked with a crowd of nine thousand, which was the best crowd they'd had in three seasons <laughs> poor buggers and, and ju- just the last thing on tommy there was an article talking about Cherry Mesher, who uh, you know Tommy had promoted that year, and uh, Tommy had said, "I call him Mesh. His other handle's too tough for me." It's like your name's Redonius. <laughs> no, I know, I know. <laughs> the audacity. <laughs> uh, and West did surprisingly well that year. Like they were in semi-final contention for much of the season. Well, they were coming off the Warren Ryan era of strength and toughness. I think Tommy capitalised on the last dregs of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and But also had some good players coming through. You know, the likes of George Arliss, Cherry Mesher, the McGuinness brothers. I was a big fan of George Arliss. Yeah, same. Darren Santa, regular first grader that year as well. So th- there was definitely some semblance of a good team there. The thing that stood out in terms of the other side of it, the bridge, to the NRL era was the debut of Darren Lockyer that year. It's amazing how long he played, really. Yeah. I knew he was around that era, but just seeing 1995 really made it sink in. Exactly, because I always associate him with, you know, the kind of Super League and beyond era Broncos, but Mm. he made his debut mid-season, 18 years old. I do remember Sterling and Lewis both saying... He's amazing, this kid. He has so much time. And I remember him saying time, 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 all the time. Yeah. And it stuck in my head. And there's two guys with the most time in the history of rugby league saying this guy's got oodles of time and it proved to be correct. Yeah. And just reading the some of the reports on him. So he got, after you know doing well in the lower grades that year, he got a chance playing against Parramatta, which you know they won three games all year. So it was basically like a nothing game for the Broncos. So it's, you know, the classic opportunity, we'll we'll throw him in here, see how he goes, and basically played out the rest of the season uh, in first grade. So as a coach, as someone who's developing players, how good a feeling must it be to give a bloke a chance and just be like, he's ready, yep, off he goes. Yeah. And the funny thing is, considering how much consternation there was when he made the switch from fullback to 5'8", he came in known as a half or a centre, in all the write-ups of him, there was no word of him being a fullback at all. Yeah, and then that didn't help him at all when the knives come out. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, there was very little non-Super League to discuss that year. So I, I want to talk about the Super League context uh, in terms of the devastating effect that had on the public appetite for the game. You could read over the course of a season, the press and the public gradually just falling out of love with rugby league. It was palpable. That's a fact. But, I mean, my view has always been 
particularly rugby league people, like knee-jerk behavior. I equate it to the um, Chappelle Corby gets busted in Bali with the boogie board full of drugs, and everyone's like, I'm boycotting Bali. And a week later, they're on holidays in Bali. Like, yeah. <laughs> like all these people that were hating rugby league, they were back again, most of them, by 1998. Uh, there was one article in the Herald in May. John Huxley was the author of this piece who interviewed a bunch of rugby league fans about their feelings. Uh, and if you want to talk about knee jerk, <laughs> um, there was uh, Mrs. Manning from Canterbury who said, I can't stand all the bickering anymore. I've finished with football. And my favourite, Ron Duff, who uh, a fellow St. George fan, faxed uh, Chief Executive Jeff Carr explaining that he was no longer willing to watch a club containing such a large traitor element. <laughs> Can you imagine what being the St. George administrator would be, like dealing with the fans? <laughs> There'd be calls every day about who you should be picking and diabolical. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to date the show, but I I really hope those calls are flooding the switchboard uh, at the moment. <laughs> well, that's not going to date the show. It could be any year, mate. <laughs> but this tension even worked its way onto the field uh, and, in fact, into the mascots with Stanley the Steeler being sent <laughs> off at a... <laughs> In a mid-year game for uh, getting involved in a fight uh, in in a match between Illawarra and Balmain. So, but this was a fight in the stands, right? It wasn't on the field. No, no, no. It was on the field. <laughs> How do I not remember this? So uh, he was playing the role of peacemaker in pulling players off each other. But uh... <laughs> it's got to be up there with Ron Palmer in the plate of ball. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so the, the referee decided that that was uh, beyond his remit and sent him from the field. And during the week, um, you know, there was talk of whether Stanley would have to face the judiciary. And John Quayle, I actually thought this comment was quite sweet in light of everything that was going on. I know how easy it is to become emotional and over-exuberant. And goodness me, the game right now is in need of some fun. I love that quote too, but I've got to say, if that was a Super League mascot... Yeah, yeah. They'd be trying to hang him in the public square. <laughs> yeah, but like John Quayle knows better than anybody about, you know, blowing a gasket, so good on him for that. Yeah. Also on Quayle, there was a surprising bit of humour when he was asked in that uh, big league uh, interview the best try he scored, where he said, there were so many I just can't remember them all. Some were from 100 <laughs> metres behind my own line. Sometimes I beat 12 guys. Other times I dived over from five metres with guys hanging off me like bananas. <laughs> but levity from John Quayle aside, I think beyond the Super League drama, another big issue for the game was an inordinate amount of lopsided scores and an overall decline in the standard of play. So I want to do my recommendation of the week. And once again, it's not the book, but I'm going to recommend the YouTube channel of Sea Eagles Fan, who has... I cannot, I mean, I really hope he's a listener because I'm blown away that someone could take the time to do what he's done uh, with season recaps of, I think he goes from 94 through 98, where he's basically compiled every news report of games from that season and compiled them in chronological order. Amazing resource. 
it's, I mean, for a podcast going between 1994 and 1998, it couldn't be better for yeah, us. I know. But it's so entertaining. And just to see like the labor of love, uh, I really love it. Yeah. I want to know where he's sourcing this stuff for a start. It would have been all on VHS or something, you'd have to imagine. Yeah, yeah. And when the TV networks were probably still taping over their old footage in, in the 90s, it's uh, quite incredible that he managed to hold on to all of this. Yeah, they were the days when they were like, oh, mate, I mean, tapes are pretty dear. We'll just tape over the moon landing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so watching the season play out over the course of an afternoon, as I did watching this YouTube video, which once again, get to YouTube and subscribe to the Sea Eagles fan channel. It was striking how many, you know, 50 to 6, so all these like blowouts. And I got to thinking, is this some kind of record? So uh, as you do, I went to Andrew Ferguson from the Rugby League Project just to ask, you know, if I was on the money, like, was this the most lopsided season in premiership history? So I asked Andrew if he could provide a stat of the seasons with the biggest margin of victory. And sure enough, 1995 wasn't the most lopsided. So 1935 is the runaway there with an average margin of victory of 19.49. That was all Dave Brown, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, all Dave Brown playing Canterbury and and University. 1920 was 17.92. But then in air quotes, the modern era, 1995 is the gold standard with an average margin of victory of 17.81. But it was always going to be four expansion teams and about half a dozen dud teams. And it really, I'm not saying it's the only factor, but it really shows that the expansion to 20 teams was an instant failure. And all those doubters were proven correct. When there's already so much debate about the gap between the haves and the have-nots, is adding four more have-nots to the mix really the answer? It's not the answer, but I give them a slight pass because they're probably thinking, let's just do it like a Band-Aid and get it all done in one go and then we can have a few bad seasons and build them up all at one time. But it didn't work, obviously. But it would have worked if they made four teams relocate. From Sydney. Yeah, exactly. And and that's been my argument all along. I think it was complete madness to expand without retraction. And when you look at that gap between the haves and the have-nots, I went and had a look in, to see how many players from semi-finalists in 1994 actually went to those four new clubs. And so I found a total of 10 players. You had Mario Fennick and Martin Bella, both past their prime, Mark Hone, the tail end of his prime. Chris McKenna, not yet at his prime. So Sean Hoppy going to Auckland was really the only top player in his prime who went from a semi-finalist to another semi-finalist. Then you had like five kind of journeymen or players that never really went on with it. So all these four new teams were made up from clubs who were already like have-nots. It was a recipe for disaster, apart from the Reds who showed some sort of a fight with their 6,000 kilometre <laughs> road trip fortress. Uh, yeah. They were, um, the rest of them didn't do much. <laughs> I want us to talk about uh, one of those players who went from a semi-final team in 1994 to one of those expansion teams was Chris Ryan, who went to the Reds after playing 26 games for Manly between 92 and 94. I don't really have much of a memory of him, but he was like watching that news compilation from Sea Eagles fan. He was like the red star player, like scoring tries week in, week out. Maybe it was just the long blonde hair, but he really stood out in that team. No, he was good. And he was good with Manly too. I think it was a really good signing. 
But lastly, on that margin of victory, one interesting thing I noted from the stats that Andrew sent back to me was that 1994 was actually sixth on the list with an average margin of 16.65. That surprised me. Yeah, so it puts into question the idea that, you know, that was some kind of footballing utopia, uh, as, you know, we made the argument for. Yeah, but we've already proved that, I mean, 94 is rose-coloured glasses. We've proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. (laughs) And I think that another reason for the downturn in public support was some of those jerseys. I saw a Ian Head's column in the Herald, Sun Herald, where he's talking about some of the reasons why enthusiasm was down. And he mentioned the loss of identity of teams with largely unpopular name changes and garish new playing strips. Well, I think like <laughs> clubs underestimate how much it pisses fans off when they go away from their classic looks. 100%. But like, I mean, if there's not a better judge, like the definition of dignified Ian Head's if he's calling it garish, they're garish. Yeah. <laughs> so I sent you some examples of ones that I thought were particularly bad and one which I'll save for last that I, I want to have a discussion about. Well, um, after I finished vomiting from looking at them, there was one that I have, have a disagreement with, or two actually. Okay, so the one that stood out for me, this is my most hated one, was the Roosters away jersey. Uh, disgusting. But I think the Balmain jersey, the MLC mobile phones, Balmain jersey is the worst. Yeah, that was bad. That was really bad. So Balmain went with the kind of hoop jerseys, but with predominantly orange with thin white and a bit of black. Not a good look. We'll put these on the social media for the listeners to give their opinions too. But for mine, the Balmain one is definitely the worst. Roosters are close second. Yeah, the, the Roosters with the... It's almost pink, the little... I won't try to describe it. We'll give the visual. I really don't like that Parramatta jersey of that era. The Parramatta one, it looks like a, uh, it's got so many horizontal yellow lines. It looks like a training shirt. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing. You've used the right word. It's lines, not stripes. Yeah. It's just blue with these like tiny, you know, strips of of yellow. 95 wasn't the fashion beacon of all all time either. (laughs) i <laughs> uh, didn't like the sharks jerseys see this is the one i, I disagree on i think the sharks one was quite uh, smart for the period to me they're another one of those clubs that have never really nailed the jersey i'm a fan of the color sky blue so probably the et factor i always thought they look pretty cool generally but yeah what's your take on the pepsi manly jerseys well i was gonna say i, I stick up for that one as well because not that it's like 87 or anything. The 87 one's the gold standard, but uh, this one's got history with the premierships and the grand finals. So. This was my point. It, it seems like success changes your perception of things. Definitely. Because when you look at that jersey, it's pretty nondescript, really, like compared to the classic Wormald era jerseys. But it's mm. iconic because when I think of a successful Manly team, that's the first era I was really present for when they were you know that dominant team was in those pepsi jerseys it's also that rare thing where the sponsor actually makes that jersey yeah that's something people like you know when it's like to some stupid company that no one's ever heard of mlc mobile phones for example (laughs) Uh, now i've saved this for last because i want to have it out once and for all because i know we're on opposite sides of this fight but the broncos diamond jerseys I'm going to give you the floor. All right. Well, this is the oldest argument we've ever had, even more so than Blacklock v. Mullins. But 
I still think it sucks. I actually think it reminds me, and it's this is of the time as well. You know those magic eye things where you sort of blur your eyes, yeah, and something the 3D thing pops out. That's what it reminds me of a magic eye uh, picture. To me, my argument for is a. I just think they're really aesthetically pleasing, which is subjective. But the other thing I'd say about them is the Broncos, for all their success. They never really nailed the jersey. Like, what is the classic Broncos jersey? You know, I I can't imagine it in my head the way I can for, you know, like the Dragons or, you know, another team like that. The classic for me is the 92-93, the Alan Can model. Yeah. But to me, it's still, I, I can't really picture, like, where are the stripes? Where's the maroon? Where's the yellow? You know, it, it's kind of, it doesn't immediately form in my head. But those diamond jerseys, they stand out instantly (laughs) they do stand out i'll give you that (laughs) (laughs) but i think if they'd stuck with them long term like it would have been one of the most iconic jerseys in sport yeah maybe you're right could have been like the newcastle um soccer team in premier league with the black and white yeah yeah so uh i think the diamond was their chance for an iconic look Uh, i think we need a a twitter poll on this as well because i'd love to see what the consensus is I think you're so right about that. If you chop and change jerseys too much in rugby league, you're going to lose people. Yeah. I mean, they seem to chop and change or at least modify every year to try and sell more jerseys. But you've got to stay somewhere around your base. I mean, you've got the nines to make your garish, um, ridiculous jerseys. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, and there's six alternate special jerseys a year. So there's no reason to mess around with your traditional colors or your traditional look. The fact that you can't picture the classic Broncos style is a real worry for their branding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But when I look at the teams that got it right that year, it's all like the classic look, like those Steelers jerseys, amazing. You know, Dragons were traditional. Knights, one of the few teams that got it right first go. I'm giving all the the new teams of 95 a free pass because it seems nearly impossible for league teams to actually nail the jersey on the first go. While we're on jerseys, why did it take till 2004 or something to work out that having baggy jerseys was a bad idea? (laughs) (laughs) Like You could be through a gap and a guy can just reach out behind him and grab a handful of jerseys and just at least slow you down. Just because you've got billowing um, caftans flying in the wind as you run through. Yeah, but with very few exception, they look better in that old style. So I do lament the passing of that era. But so moving on from the jerseys and, and just to wrap this all up, what this all meant, the distaste for Super League, mascots getting into fights, jerseys changes, all of this resulted in a pretty staggering drop in crowds, in Sydney in particular. When you look at it across the board, away from Sydney, the crowds weren't that affected. You know, like Canberra was down a little, Brisbane was down 6,000, but, you know, they averaged 36,000 in 94 to 30 in 95, so not a problem there. Sydney, it was pretty glaring how bad the crowds were. So, you know, the Bulldogs basically halved their crowds for 94. The two that surprised me was the strength of North Sydney. I didn't realise that was so big. Yeah, so they had a drop of 3,000 going from 15 to 12. But I mean, I wouldn't even think the North Sydney over would hold 15. But they were second among Sydney crowds. Which is so surprising. Yeah, yeah. So Manly were one of two clubs that actually had an increase in crowds that year. They went from 14,630 to 15,074. Newcastle also improved by a couple of thousand. 
uh, which can be explained by the fact that they finished 10th in 94 and finished 5th in 95 and were, you know, right at the top of the competition for much of the season. Like in 95, they played a beautiful brand of football too. Oh, yeah, yeah. The dogs dropping off, there's more to it than Super League. I think the biggest factor was going from Belmore to Parramatta Stadium, which was a, a wildly unpopular move in the eyes of the fans. For a game that wants to be relying on tribalism, this chopping and changing of grounds has just been so detrimental. Yeah. Canterbury and Balmain both changed their name to Sydney and moved to Parramatta. Both of those clubs reversed both of those decisions within a couple of years. So it clearly wasn't what the people wanted. Those crowd figures, though, the interesting one for me as well was that West's Western Suburbs Magpies were far and above Balmain Tigers in crowds. Yeah, and West, well, they actually basically reversed their crowd figures. So Balmain in 1994 had 8,000, in 1995 had just under 6,000. Wes in 1994 had just under 6,000 and got that up over 8,000 in 1995. So yeah, they basically did a straight swap. Balmain was the biggest basket case of all back then. Mm. The only reason they survived, I think, I don't know what you think about this, but I think that Warren Ryan period of success, they had a bunch of young fans that sort of stuck with them from there. I think without that period of success, they were gone. There's little doubt of that. Like, I think that's bang on the money. Like, because they still had this veneer of relevance, even though they were clearly not relevant and weren't likely to be any time in the near future. But there was a lot of talk about the crowds throughout the year and one Rugby League Week article by Daniel Lane in May discussed that weekend sport across the board and found that Rugby League was being outdrawn by there was a Wallabies versus Argentina test, which, you know, it's still a test match, so fair enough. The Swans were outdrawing all the Sydney games that weekend. 95 was the real ramping up of the Swans juggernaut. Yeah. Tony Lockett era, which which I... I couldn't believe what was happening at the time. When I read this article, so it was on the 10th of May, I thought I'd go in and have a look at all the rugby league crowds that weekend. You had two games sub 5,000, Parramatta versus the Cowboys and uh, the Dragons versus Illawarra. Another two sub 6,000, another one sub 7,000. Like that is unacceptable. It really is. But then I went and did a comparison to that same weekend in 1994 and again you had you know Balmain Newcastle drawing 4,391 at Leichhardt you had Penrith and West getting 4,900 at Campbelltown so it was a problem before Super League yeah absolutely but yeah you mentioned the AFL and this is like where it all started and I think it was coming anyway but everything that was happening in rugby league didn't help well, I've told this story before. In my school, a couple of mates, uh, staunch rugby league guys until that time, it, it went on a, a trip to Sydney to watch the AFL and then come back all proud and like a bunch of us couldn't believe it. You know, it's like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting side note, that guy went on later in life to support the uh, A-League. So <laughs> goes to show. Never a true rugby league man by no. the sounds of it. He's never smoked a windfield in his life. <laughs> <laughs> But pretty remarkable turnaround from the Swans, who went from having an average crowd of 9,800 in 1994, just under 16,000 in 95, just under 25,000 in 1996, uh, and then over 36,000 in 1997. 
the one um, encouraging thing is that that 1997 season is still the peak of their average crowds. I mean, I love when they were the whipping boys of uh, the media, but I mean, you couldn't deny when that cricket ground was full like it was every week, it just looked so cool. Yeah, yeah. Just before we move on from that, the really interesting thing I saw was that they had between 2012 and 2018, they basically doubled their membership, going from like just over 30,000 to over 60,000. But that increase hasn't correlated with any like real increase in crowds. So you wonder how they're counting those memberships if there's some creativity going on with those figures. It's like my auntie in Melbourne. She's a massive Swans fan. Grew up in Newcastle, but mm. so those South Melbourne fans and external fans yeah. probably get the membership packs and then um, don't go to the Sydney games. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, doubling your membership in six years is pretty uh, interesting. Can we get them in the rugby league, those, uh, those, those yeah. salespeople? <laughs> <laughs> So let's move on to the two grand finalists, Manly and Canterbury. And we'll start with Manly and and have a look at that squad, uh, which we don't have to talk about in depth because we've already talked about so many of these players throughout the season. But it's funny because I remember talking to my uncle, I I guess it would have been maybe like the 2011 grand final. Like many rugby league fans, Manly not a favourite team of myself or my family. I remember talking to my uncle about that and going like... This Manly team, like they're, they're actually kind of likeable. They're, I really like a, a lot of those players, and there's not too many dickheads in that team. This 95 team, a very hateable Manly team. I was going to say, which um, team were you looking at? But, um, <laughs> yeah, Reggie, Terry Hill, Hopper, <laughs> just to name a few. But it was built with that classic mix of youth and experience. Obviously, you had Steve Menzies come through the year before, you know, instantly formed this on-field bond with Cliff Lyons that was devastating. You had that old firm of Cliffy, Des Hasler, who was kind of rejuvenated and playing a a really important role in that side, having been switched to hooker full-time during that season. I want to bring in a name for you here. Now, is this guy, for a test player, one of the most underrated ever, David Gillespie? Mm. Every team he played in was going somewhere. It was the Kevin Campion effect. Yeah, yeah, and it's... A finish to his career that he could quite possibly have missed out on. Like six months before 1995 season started, he was thinking about retiring. Suddenly he shelves that, decides to keep playing, gets overlooked for origin, but then makes his way into the test team, gets a World Cup trip out of it, plays the following year, gets a premiership. Like pretty impressive end to the career. Absolutely, but his his whole career was impressive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Watching a lot of the the Jeff Toovey highlights for that year both for Manly and also during the World Cup it took me back to our Hall of Fame discussion about Tuvi where I instantly dismissed him basically and and you didn't put up much of a fight I think in in a later episode we decided that we were maybe harsh in ruling him out so quickly definitely flipping I think he was hurt by the this huge amount of talent in those positions in the, in the eras but yeah yeah Another guy underrated by me for sure. It's funny, I'm seeing his head now, his beetroot, there has to be an investigation style head. And he was such a fresh-faced young, it looked like a young German boy. And even in 1995, he's closer to 1990 Jeff Tovey. When his looks went, they went. Like, he fell off a cliff so quickly. <laughs> and it was the hookering, so if you yeah, get in yeah. the dummy half and Adam McDougall's kicking you in the face. <laughs> yeah. But I think if he either played all his career at hooker or had made that switch full-time to hooker earlier on, 
we'd be weighing him up a lot differently because I think playing halfback, you are in the shadow of some of the all-time greats, which I don't think he measured up to. But just his toughness, his tenacity, his football smarts, like I've been really impressed watching him over these last few months and it's caused me to really reevaluate my opinion of him. I forgot how dangerous he was running at the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, On the other side, you had some young blokes coming through. I've already mentioned Steve Menzies. Nick Kosseff, at that time in 1995, it's easy to forget how highly he was rated. Well, he was called the next Bradley Clyde because he was playing like a young Bradley Clyde. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. That was um, Bob Fulton's estimation of him. Uh, and he you know, went on to make the World Cup tour that year. He ended up playing until 2002, which surprised me when I um, looked back at that. By his own admission, he was finished by about 1998. <laughs> Don't but, you hate when, that, when they admit it after the fact? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it cost us a few uh, salary cap points in that time. But in 1993, he did his ACL uh, at the same time that uh, Matthew Ridge also did his ACL. And so they were going to the specialists at the same time. Luckily, uh, Matthew Ridge has recounted this experience in his book. So uh, I- I'm just going to read this. Nick goes in first and I'm sitting, reading magazines in the waiting room. Eventually, he comes out and he's absolutely bawling and his mum's distraught. I say, mate, Nick, what's up? He can't talk. He's sobbing and bawling his eyes out. What's up? He reckons I'll never play again. What? He reckons my football career's over. Nick, you've blown your anterior cruciate. You're going to have a knee reconstruction. Don't be stupid. You'll be fine. Wah, wah. Jeez, you're soft. Just get over it, Nick. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm really, con- I'm really concerned for him because he's freaking out and his mum's upset too. I'm looking sideways thinking, Jesus. <laughs> The greatest book of all time. <laughs> <laughs> so he's feeling bad for him, but he decides to mock him in front of his mum. <laughs> the other um, player I really wanted to talk about from that team was Terry Hill, who was in his second year at Manly, coming from Wests. And this was the real era of footy show Terry Hill. I'm just wondering if my opinion of Terry Hill would be altered if he didn't have that footy show gig because I thought he was the biggest dickhead in the game. I couldn't stand <laughs> him. And it, and it was basically all based on him on the footy show. I mean, I didn't realise at, at that age how important sledging was and niggle in the game of rugby league. So I didn't really appreciate yeah. him as much. We talked about him on the Hall of Fame, how much we rate him as a footballer. Mm. But looking back as an adult, it's like, God, he was a good player. Yeah, yeah. I'll give him one pass. He was himself on the footy show. Like, same as Fatty, what you saw is what he was like, you know? what There was no... Uh, yeah. He was really down there supporting Nads and putting money on Nads. Yeah, exactly. The other big footy show stunt of that year was putting him up in a race at Wyong Race Course against a horse, which he actually won by every admission with some uh, significant assistance from the handicapper. <laughs> He was given a, a good start in that race and, and won fairly comfortably. While we're on the disaster that was the footy show post-1994, I don't think the Terry Hill stuff even compares to how bad like daredevil dudes and like you know anti-ads towards the end. Yeah, yeah. On that Wyong race course stunt, they mentioned that uh, Mahatma Coat was there <laughs> uh, spurring Terry Hill on. <laughs> and like 
that's how you know how bad that character was. He was even too racist for 1995. <laughs> well, see, in Newcastle, in 95, it was totally cool. Right? <laughs> Everyone's like, like a tiger, like a tiger. <laughs> like adults, kids, everyone was into it. But obviously, beside his footy show dickheadedness and his uh, great on-field play, the other thing he was known for was his sledging ability, which Matthew Ridge said extended off the field. Uh, his quote was, for Terry, life's a full-on bagathon every day of the week. <laughs> I credit Paul Fatty Vorton for the uh, a-thon uh, coming into the vernacular. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, this uh, gave Ridge the opportunity to to discuss the, the fine art of sledging in some detail. So once again, I'm I'm gonna uh, go straight to Ridge's words in "Take No Prisoners." I cop heaps, but I give as good as I get, and it's all perfectly acceptable in an Australian changing room. If someone walks in with an ugly jacket on, you don't respect his taste. You say, "That's a nice jacket, mate," and raise your eyebrows. When they say. <laughs> What, you don't like it? You go, nah, it's cool, mate, if you like that sort of thing. The banter's going on all the time. <laughs> and then he goes on to break down the, the specific style of sledging that uh, some of his Manly teammates possess. So I'll just read this. Manly are known as the team of sledgers, but we aren't. There are only a few of us, just me, Terry, and Mark Carroll, really. Oh, and John Hopperwadi. But you can't call what Hopper does sledging. He just goes overboard. His comments to the opposition are more like the delirious rantings of homicidal maniac. Like, I sledge fairly subtly. Terry's right in your face. Mark's over the top. No finesse, no cleverness, just straight out abuse. And then Hopper's very over the top. Well, I saw uh, in the grand final, Reggie brought down Terry Land close to the line. They almost scored and he was giving him a gobful. Looked like out and out abuse to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I would love to hear some of Ridge's opponents on whether they consider his sledging particularly subtle. Well, you, you see it all through the book. He's always saying something outrageous and antagonistic and going, <laughs> and then he wanted to hit me. I don't know where it come from. <laughs> but again, like watching Matthew Ridge this season, it's another one where I always knew he was a good player. He just annoyed me. But watching him, like he was so good. Like, he was such a good player. The words class and elegance come to mind when I think of him. He never dropped a ball. Yep. Everything was just so mm. smooth. And, yeah, he's just a great, great player. So safe in defense. Genuine game breaker in attack. His goal kicking added, like, another element. And and I, I guess I'm a bit biased because of how much respect I've developed for him over the course of reading his book. But uh, he's become one of my favorite players from the 90s when, at the time, I couldn't stand him. Well, he had that Luke Perry haircut too, which was annoying at the time. <laughs> the high forehead, etc. So on to the Manly season. And it was the culmination of something that had been building since Bozo arrived to coach the team again in 1993. Of course, he had no plans of coaching the team, but uh, when Graham Lowe had some significant health problems and couldn't go on with it, they called Bozo in and so he took over the reins. They were unlikely semi-finalists in 93 and were building up from there. It took me a while to actually grapple with the fact that Manly were the best team that year because I was so used to them being like the fifth or sixth best team. When I think of the, the mid-90s, I just think Manly and Canterbury straight away. Like yep. I don't sort of remember the bad times of the early 90s for Manly. Yeah. Just to put Manly into a Super League context, obviously they 
were the poster boy for the ARL, uh, which came about not only because of their on-field success, but because of their close links with Ken Arthurson. Arthurson was actually there at Brookvale on the April Fool's Day weekend and addressed the crowd. I want to recount what he said, but first of all, I just want to read this. This was Tony McGahey in Big League on the 5th of April. It was a day when the opening of the spectacular new Southern Grandstand and matters on the football field were surrendered to focus on one of the most vital issues in the history of the game. Uh, Something really stood out to me with that statement. I could not dream up a less spectacular grandstand than the Southern Grandstand at Brookvale. (laughs) Yeah, the Southern bike rack. (laughs) But uh, back to Arthurson, you remember when we were talking uh, in our Phillips Street chapter about Arthurson addressing Manly and saying, you know, this is a decision you guys have to make. Don't worry about what I think. You do what's best for you. It's hard to square that off with him addressing the crowd that weekend saying, this game belongs to the people of Australia and the ARL will protect its family members with every ounce of strength we have in our bodies. Let me give you an assurance we'll never give in. What right? Who are these people to come in and try to take over our sport? Rugby league belongs to the people. So he, he's telling the Manly team that, you know, make your own decision, you know, don't worry about me. But then he's on field, you know, reciting Churchill's, you know, World War Two speeches. I think everyone in Manly knew where they stood with Arco in the ARL. <laughs> Pre-speech. But to Manly's credit and to Bozo's credit, they never let Super League become a distraction. As we talked about with Ridge and Roberts, it was just, you know, no unrest in the nest. Let's forget about Super League. Uh, I'm sure it was discussed during the year with, you know, some G-ups. Like apparently there was a a paintball expedition where Matthew Ridge was the target of the paintballs, (laughs) but that probably would have happened even without Super League. Ridge is thinking, I mean, these blokes are kidding, aren't they? But... uh... (laughs) That's a great slogan, no unrest in the nest. Mm. And they went on to win the minor premiership, losing only two matches throughout the course of the season, uh, winning their first 15 matches. So uh, incredible hot streak. The first match they lost was actually that match against the Roosters where Phil Gould threatened to call his team off the field. Disgusting moment in rugby league. Uh, and it's funny, that minor premiership race, even though like I remember Manly... And I guess it was because of that winning run at the start. It seemed that they were like clear and away minor premiers, but you know Canberra finished equal on points. Newcastle for a long time were pushing them as well, and it was only late in the season that they faded and ended up finishing fifth. But they were a, a real force for that first half of the season as well, going on a, a lengthy unbeaten streak to start the year. Just a little bit of experience short, I think, with the the Johns yep. brothers coming through. But geez, that was a good side. Yeah, exactly. So a, a great year for Manly. We'll get to how it played out in the semifinals a bit later. Uh, let's turn to Canterbury. Uh, and the big talking point, of course, was Terry Lamb playing in his last season. Of course, he did go on and come back in 1996. We'll discuss that in a later chapter. Terry Lamb really, like, in many ways, the Winfield Cup personified. He's one of only four players to have played every season of the Winfield Cup. Uh, it was him, Phil Blake, Ricky Walford, and Mario Fennick. I'm very surprised to hear Ricky Walford was that early. I didn't know he started that early. So he had a couple of years for East and I can't remember if it was Manly or Norths, but he had three years in the early days before going to St. George. 
that's unreal. Like the four legends of the game. But like, mm. watching Barr in this final series of this year in the grand final, like, at the peak of his powers at that age. Yeah. This is a, a strange thing to say because he's clearly highly rated, but I think he's underrated. I think he is too. I think he suffered from the Tuvi issue of um, people discriminated against him and Tuvi because of their body size mm. and also the legendary halves surrounding them at the years. Yeah. He had Lewis and Kenny he, and then he had Daly and uh, Walters. and Yeah, exactly. So he definitely had that. And it's funny him going up against Cliff Lyons in the grand final because Cliffy was kind of the same, always, you know, third or fourth in the pecking order for the rep teams and didn't have the rep career he might have in another era. Well, that's a question for you. Who do you rate the best career out of Cliffy and Barr? I think Terry Lamb is the better player by some distance. Everyone would probably agree that Cliffy's are more enjoyable to watch, but yeah. overall I'd probably agree with you just by a hair though, in terms of consistency anyway. It's that classic... If I'm settling in to watch one of the two players, I would have picked Cliffy. If someone was playing for my life, no hesitation, it would be Terry Lamb. Bullfrog actually had a great quote where he said, The worst I ever saw him play was good. He had real good games and great games so often and we'll miss him. Yeah, incredible. But he's always in the right position. Every part of the game, he's in the right position to cover a grubber kick, to back up, to make a tackle. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Mm. And you mentioned Brett Kenny and he was like in awe of... Terry Lamb as a player, he said, I used to watch closely how he played the game. It amazed me how well he read a match and how he could back up all the time. I've never seen a player with the ability to back up the ball carrier. Just watching him helped me improve my game. I saw how he did it and I copied him. Barr was a true professional and these sort of players do not come along very often. Isn't that amazing? He's considered a true professional and then he wouldn't train. It's like, yeah. <laughs> to me, that's one of the best parts of the Barr story. I've said it before, the fact that he proved everybody wrong. Like, If I don't train, I play better. So. Well, it's funny. There was a lot of talk during the season from the likes of Chris Anderson sort of saying that was a bit of a myth. And I don't know if that's just kind of building it up to, you know, refute the truth or whether he was actually a better trainer than his reputation suggests. But, you know, I kind of hope the story's true because it adds to the myth, doesn't it? It does add to the myth. One of the best things I heard was um, Phil Gould in commentary again in 95. He was a great commentator. He didn't have any agendas going, just great analysis. But he's described mm. Terry Lamb as the world's best wet weather footballer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a well. I mean, it's true. But <laughs> if you look at him in that semi-final series, like the game against the Dragons and the Canberra game as well, both very wet. And I mean, that's exactly how it played out. So that season became all about Terry Lamb's farewell, and you could see how much the players were doing it for him. They all talked about it openly. Uh, but it, it led to this really rare spirit within that Canterbury team. Gary Hughes, who was the team manager at the time, this, I don't know, it gave me chills. I, I, I really like this. Something I remember in 95 was Terry Lamb had this thing just before the team was about to go out onto the field. The touch judge would come and knock on the door and say, ready Canterbury? The players would be nearly ready to go. A couple of last minute things they'd be doing. And Terry Lamb would look at a couple of blokes in the forwards in particular. I guess he figured they'd set the standard. he looked look at Dean Pay in the eye and say, Dino. And Dean Pay would look back at him and just nod his head. He wouldn't say anything. He'd just nod his head. Then he'd look at Darren Britt and say, Britty, and Britty would nod his head. Next week, he'd look at Jason Hetherington and he'd nod his head, just the same as the other guys, as if to say, we're ready. Well, But speaking of Dean Pay, this was the year that he took his game to a whole other level, you know, making the Kangaroo Tour in 94 and then 
elevating his game even higher the following year. He was incredible in all the games I watched from 1995. Best prop in the world at that point. Yeah, agreed, totally. And that's with the, the Super League contingent included. The one guy I wanted to bring up was Simon Gillies, who was, I was always a big Simon Gillies fan. But the point I wanted to bring up about him is, from as long as I can remember, he was being referred to as underrated. Like every commentator, mm. every week, Simon Gillies, so underrated. At what point of underrated calls do you become <laughs> rated? Yeah. <laughs> like to me, he should have just been rated. Yeah, yeah. He was another one that was great to watch uh, in that final series in particular. Uh, Jason Hetherington, we've discussed before, but I loved watching Hetherington play. And this was another one where this is the year that made him, where he was suddenly getting all the raps, going from someone who wasn't really talked about to, oh, hang on, this guy is actually like one of the best hookers in the game. His defense was Gilmeister-esque. Mm. And it's funny, like reading up on Hetherington, he started at Canterbury as a 5 uh, and, you know, moved to hooker when there was an opportunity to play first grade there. To me, just he, he seemed such a pure hooker that I was actually surprised that, you know, he hadn't, you know, played all his career there. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's just built for the hooking role, the nuggety um, frame, but he looks a bit mm. like Barr, I suppose, so he could have been a 5 eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, Terry Lane could have been a great hooker as well, but... Yeah. To me, Jason Hetherington, along with Paul Fatty Vorton, are the two most naturally funny footballers of all time. <laughs> really? He's such a dry, funny delivery. Super dry. Like, probably the most laconic speaker I've ever heard in rugby league. Yeah, great guy too, it seems like. Mm. Canterbury were helped by a couple of useful acquisitions that year with uh, John Timu coming in and being a real standout. John Timu blew me away watching that recap again of the season. I forgot how great a player he was. Like he kind of just, mm. uh, he's gone under the radar. Former All Black, as we know, and just he was class. Yeah. So hard to oh, stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. I hadn't forgotten just because I went to a school with a lot of Bulldogs fans. Right. And every second word that came out of their mouth that year was John Timu. <laughs> <laughs> so big raps on him but yeah like super player it's a shame he didn't come over earlier like he ended up playing three years for the dogs before finishing his career in england he was part of that like decent london side which was cool mm. um a bit of barnet talk out of this season as well um glenn hughes in the grand final comes on to score a try have you seen a flat top that flat <laughs> you could serve a tray of mojitos off that flat top <laughs> yeah, because Dimmick shaved his head for the uh, grand final, so he lost his flat top, which was disappointing. It's a shame that McCracken fell out of favour during the year because him and Timu as a centre pairing and a Barnet pairing would have been world class. <laughs> they had so much depth that side. We talked about him a bit in our 94 recap, but Matt Ryan, like he was a quality player. He had a lot, lot of injury problems in 95, so didn't really get too much of a run but anytime he played he was a standout you know when manly had craig innes and um yeah he was sort of like the defensive center and but also sold in attack that's how i remember matthew ryan yeah yeah um the other acquisition they got that year was actually a mid-season pickup which was rod silver who when they got him i was kind of like rod silver right? he's a bit washed up isn't he but he was so good for him and in the years beyond 95 he was of that old school the uh, slippery ball returner as opposed to the power ball mm. returner. But he beat a tackle yep. every time. Yep. He was a meter eater and just always beating guys. Yeah. Um, one thing I didn't realize 
at the time was that he was actually playing reserve grade in, at Easts and got released because he fell out with Gus over Super League. So he signed with Super League. And unlike Manly, no one rest in the, in the nest, that was a problem for Gus. <laughs> there was poop in the coop. <laughs> but yeah, that made their season, the, the silver signing. Mm. So let's talk about the season, which mid-year, there was no way a grand final appearance was looking likely or even a semi-final appearance. We talked about that Parramatta loss, uh, which was viewed as the nadir and, and the proof that Super League was tearing the team apart. So one of three wins that Parramatta got that year, they were terrible. But just thinking about that and how much that loss was talked about at the time, I think that says something about the evenness of the competition now. Like Canterbury were a good team, but not viewed in the same as like Canberra or Brisbane or Manly class. So like losing to Parramatta in a mid-season game, it was treated like it was the end of the world. There was all this column space taken up about what was going on at Canterbury. Like now you could have the Titans beating, you know, the Roosters or whoever, and it's just one of those things that happens sometimes. Everyone looks back on the the old days and goes, oh yeah, Brisbane, Canberra, what a great time. But most of the games were blowouts. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, it was viewed as a real problem, which resulted in the need for a few honesty sessions. So we've already spoken about the fact that they they had an honesty session scheduled into their yearly calendar. That wasn't enough. Uh, we talked about that cruise that they went on, which was uh, Sands, Jared McCracken, uh, for good reason. But that actually became an honesty session at sea and a chance to, to set things right. There's no better honesty session than one on the high seas. (laughs) And this also featured a a rousing speech by Peter Moore, who gathered the team together and told Terry Lamb to go away. He said, get out of sight, go to the men's room. And then he turned to the players and said, fellas, we got a problem. Four of you are taking us to court. That's a fact. And at the moment, there's nothing we can do about it. What say we let the lawyers play their games? They may or may not be good at their game, but there's one game we are very good at, and that's rugby league. Terry's downstairs at the moment, and because of him, we have more money and more great memories. We owe him the right to hold the Winfield Cup on his last game. Think about it. Let's get back to doing what we do best. Let's do it for Terry. And that seemed like it was enough to get things right again. I think that's a really important part of it, though. Like, it's quite a simple thing, do it for Terry, but the fact that he addressed it and, and Bulldogs decreed it, that would have held over a few cracks. Yeah, exactly. If he didn't mention it, it's kind of still there. But once you do say, all right, four of you are taking us to court, but how about we just forget about that and focus on winning the game? Should have done it at the start of the season, would have been handy. <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't just that speech or that cruise. Uh, They also organized a paintball session and had an ARL versus Super League split to try to boost morale. Let me ask you, is the paintball craze for bonding, is that pre-go-karts or post-go-karts? I think it's post. I think it is too. It's very of that era anyway. But so, you know, they just scraped into the, the semifinals, finishing seventh. But that was enough. And obviously we know what happened. So let's get into that semi-final series. Before we get to the games, I want to talk about the fact that the top eight system, that was the first year that they went from five to eight, they bungled it terribly by not you know, crisscrossing the fixtures after week one. So by not reversing those fixtures, it meant that of 28 possible grand final combinations, only 16 were in play. Whereas if they just... <laughs> 
you know, put the losing teams on the opposite side of the draw, 26 of 28 would be in play. By not doing that, it meant that due to the fact that they finished second and third, there was no possible way that Brisbane and Canberra could meet in the grand final. So bad, yeah. But I mean, it seemed like for 15 years there was finals um, fixture issues. <laughs> but I mean, that one is just criminally incompetent. And it was actually Warren Ryan who first brought it to public attention. And he had this great quote about it. I wish I could find opals as often as I can find flaws with that organization. <laughs> Every year he had a great idea about the final series and they never yeah. listened to him. No, but uh, that's crazy. And the fact that like that came out in late August. So, I mean, there was still time to fix it technically. I, mean, I know you probably can't change it at that point, but surely someone could have looked at that and said, oh, it's, it boggles my mind. Well, I think it was pre-consultancy work on yeah. drawers and stuff like that. It was just blokes yeah, in, the, yeah. in the Phillips Street going, is the keg tapped yet? Or? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was the first year of the top eight system. So uh, for the sake of moving on, we'll give them a pass and talk about the finals themselves. North and Newcastle played the fifth versus eighth. North's only just scraping into the finals and wouldn't have been there if the Warriors hadn't been docked two points for using an extra replacement. I mean, how Warriors is that in the 1995 season? I know. <laughs> and so Manly uh, survived a scare in beating Cronulla. They were actually down 12 points at one stage before coming home to win 24-20, to 20, uh, making their way to the prelim. And the Raiders doing the same, beating the Broncos. The game I really want to talk about was the Dogs against the Dragons, which I thought... 25 years removed from the occasion, uh, doing it as an academic exercise, not with my red and white eyes on. I thought I could sit there and watch this game dispassionately and just, you know, take notes for the sake of doing this show. This was one of the most painful afternoons of my life to have to relive that game. Now, this occurred to me as I was preparing. There's similarities between the Dragons fan and the pathological gambler, right? The pathological yeah. gambler doesn't remember any big wins, only the uh, close losses. Yeah. Like I was one off, etc. Mm. Um, and it's the same with Dragons fans. They only remember the, the losses and not the wins. This is a top three all-time loss for me. <laughs> you know, I was going to school. I had a shave your head bet riding on this game. Lost that. I remember <laughs> this was in the year... <laughs> What, are you a premier of Queensland versus New South Wales? What are you doing? <laughs> this was in the era where the semi-finals weren't live on TV in Sydney, but my grand, but my uncle in Clovelly had uh, the satellite hookup where he could get the the Wollongong feed. So uh, me and my dad and my brother drove over to Clovelly, uh, watched the game live there. The ride home from Clovelly to Newtown. Utter silence for the 30 minutes. <laughs> Do you stop at the barber? Like, <laughs> it's, I don't remember many car trips as vividly as I do that one and the disappointment I felt in that moment. And then watching for the next three weeks as Canterbury went on to beat more fancied opposition and win the grand final, I was just thinking like that could have been us. And to this day... 1995 to me is still the one that got away but I don't think we would have gone on to win the comp we just weren't built the way the dogs were we didn't have this ferocious defense 
this tenacity that they had. But what we did have that they didn't was some X factor. You had players like Anthony Mundine, Gordon Tallis, both coming on to you know their full potential. I think if we'd have gone on that run, we would have done it in a different way. The Bulldogs' ferocious defense is what won the whole thing for them. Yep. But yep. they had 60% dogs of war, 40% entertainers. I think it was more like 80 or 90% dogs of war that gave them like an extra 20 or 30%. So it was like kind of well, 90% dogs of war, but 30% entertainers. You know, it was like they became more than. It was definitely the defense that set it up, but like, there's no other football team whose DNA has been studied by scientists more, so we should get the actual figures on that. But, <laughs> but, um, but they were an incredible side. The way they handled Canberra was, yeah, class. Yeah, we'll get to that soon. But uh, yeah, just really tough watch, but very entertaining game, the Dragons versus Dogs game. Um, your classic wet weather contest in an era where there was still mud on the field. I wanted to talk to you about the quality of the field, right? Yeah. <laughs> Mid-90s fields were abominable. Yeah. It was just totally acceptable. And there was something about the combination of the mud wet and the new synthetic football. So I think it was like year two or three of having the synthetic footballs. They just were so greasy. Like watching those games and how easily the ball came out and just looking at it and it just looked like the ball should spill out every pass you know it was um it was like the cake of soap in those days (laughs) um so yeah some pretty bad handling throughout the finals as a result of a fairly wet september in sydney and also um dean pay a real standout i think he was the difference in the end he you know put on the last try the game deciding try and yeah incredible battle between him and gordon tallis as well dean pay really stood out as the enforcer that was his game of the series. Yeah. And so week two, the Dogs went on to surprise Brisbane and like won it easy. Like it was never a contest. But the way they handled Broncos and Canberra, like the two you know, danger sides was incredible. So let's get to that Canberra game. And before we talk about the game itself, I want to you know discuss Canberra's season because they had a great year. Like they only lost two games throughout the year. Laurie Daly, despite his knee problems was in career best form. Like he won the Dally M. He had arguably his best year in the premiership. I think there's no doubt he was at the peak of his powers. He was yeah. a class above everybody on the field. Yeah. And it says a lot about Daly that he could have a career year in the midst of all this. Yeah. There was talk that you know not playing rep footy contributed to it, but I just think he was at that um, apex of his career as well. Yeah. I think guaranteed best player in the game in 95. So looking at that Canberra year, watching all the games, like they really struggled early in the season. Like even though they had a like really good start to the year and went on a, you know, lengthy undefeated run before it was actually Manly who not only gave them their first loss but their first loss at Bruce Stadium in a couple of seasons. That April Fools weekend they just got over the line against the Cowboys. You know, there were quite a few games like that where they were just winning, you know, and they weren't particularly impressive in the first half of the season. I think it was that, you know, blockbuster Canberra versus Brisbane game on the Friday night, the one where Mullins got that incredible try. They mm. won 26-0. That was kind of the spark to their season. Yeah, it was like they were coasting at times, but you can't underestimate the loss of Mal hangover. Yeah. 
But the other thing about it is they were fresh. Like for the, the first time in forever, there were no rep commitments. They had like most of their players healthy. Like Bradley Clyde played over 20 games, which he did the same in 1994. It was back to 1989 was the last time before that that he played 20 games in a season. Mm. And then they were coming on to their best form going into the, the semifinals. They had the week off, and it's the old adage, especially in this era, it doesn't help you in India. I think it hindered them. Yeah. It's, it's funny because watching the semi final, going into the rewatch, I was going into it thinking that it was one of those freak things. Like, if you played that game 10 times, Canberra would have won seven or eight of them. But the dogs were just not going to get beaten. Like, they just suffocated the Raiders. You saw it with like Nagus and, and guys that were off their game that day, Hetherington, I think, as well. I think the suffocation really hurt them, as opposed to 94 when it was like almost a training gallop for them. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny because I think like everyone was still thinking that the Raiders were going to win, you know? like and, and when Mullins scored that try to make it 11-6, uh, they ended up losing the game 25-6. to uh, When Mullins scored that try, Rab said, here they come, here come the Raiders. Yeah, And like I remember that's what I was thinking at the time watching that game. I was like, you know, Okay, good effort, Canterbury, but, you know, now make way for the big boys. You know, here comes Canberra. I was thinking that watching the replay, even though I knew the result, yeah. I was going, here they come. <laughs> yeah, because the other thing is for like a five or ten minute period after that try, it looked like that's what was going to happen. But then that pass from Terry Lamb to John Timu. Oh, magic. For the dog's third try, like this immaculate cutout ball. Like, go and watch this game on YouTube, anyone who hasn't seen it. Yes, yeah, it's well worth a watch. But Fadi described it rather unkindly as a hoik. He's just hoiked it, Lamb. It's like, no, he, he cut out about three guys and it landed right in front of him on his chest. Yeah. Um, and Canterbury went on from there. And it's funny thinking about Canberra and that missed opportunity. So, like, one of the legacies of that second Canberra era is that they only won one premiership. You know, we discussed it in evaluating that 94 team. But a game like this just shows you how hard it is to win a comp. You know, they had everything break their way that season. They were arguably better than the year before. They had the best player in the world playing his peak season, and they just happened to come up against this team that were middling all year but put it together at the perfect time. And then Lamb was fit and he wasn't hurt. Yeah. All timing. Like, Manly is the exact opposite of what happened to Canterbury, where they were the best team all year. But if you look at their semi-final performances, they get out of jail against Cronulla, then take on Newcastle in the prelim. And speaking of Cronulla, Manly and Canberra both lost two games all year before the semis. Cronulla beat both of them. So they were coming on to be a really good team as well. Mm. Fair to say they shat the bed in the semis, giving up a 12-point lead in both of their semi-final games losing 24-20 to Manly and then Newcastle beating them 19-18 uh, with a Matthew Johns field goal. Well that was Crowder DNA for many years wasn't it? Yeah yeah um, but just on uh, Newcastle I watched that Manly Newcastle prelim as well and you forget how close they came to you know maybe making a grand final in 95 like yeah. it was just that big game experience just lacking you know they just weren't quite at the maturity they needed to be. Yeah. But they were a really fun team to watch in 95. They really were. They were up there with Camper and Brisbane for their enjoyable to watch. Yeah, yeah. And I was so impressed by Matthew Johns as well. I kind of forgot that he he, he was really good. No, no, like 95 was his peak year. Yeah. 
it was considered better than Jelly, really, at that point. Yeah, at that stage, yeah. My other standout from that Manly Newcastle game was this was the height of the Harrigan versus Carroll feud. And that was like when that game started, that was all Rabs wanted to talk about. Like that, <laughs> that was the talking point. Just looking at it, it's, you know, it was compelling, it was exciting. I think in an earlier episode, you used the word electric. It was all that, but it was also just so dumb. Yeah. These two big guys running at each other for no real gain in terms of like the actual game. But it's like a kicking duel. There's, there's like zero purpose to it, but you love it. You know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so Manly ended up winning 12 4, I think the final score was. So a fairly tight game against Newcastle. So that led to the grand final, which was like a dream matchup, really. You had the first all Sydney grand final since 1988. The Super League versus ARL added to the mix. Mm. The Glamour Boys in Manly versus the Upstarts in Canterbury. Terry Lamb's last game. Like, it had everything. You couldn't really have dreamed up a better matchup. Arco v Bullfrog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it, it had it all. But, like, can I just say how much I miss desperately watching finals football at the SFS? Yeah, I know, I know. It's the most perfect football stadium for yep. rugby league. I mean, notwithstanding the cow paddock turf, but <laughs> just beautiful football ground. Yeah, like there's no better spot for those big games. So obviously in the lead up, a lot of the talking points were the Super League versus ARL thing. You had court cases going on all week, which dampened the build up for the actual game somewhat. And I love the fact that it even cast a shadow over the grand final entertainment. So to mark the end of the Winfield Cup, they were having, you know, a parade of champions doing a lap of honour. We've already heard that Mal pulled out of appearing because of the Super League connections. There was a bit of grumbling that Brisbane weren't sending their best players. So Peter Ryan was one of their representatives. (laughs) Which... (laughs) If there's anything more rugby league than that, like... Pre-match celebrations are marred by infighting. Uh, and then, obviously, the halftime entertainment debacle, which uh, you can go back to our uh, It's All About Pay TV episode to hear us break down the Optus float in detail. But just reading my notes for this prep, I loved um, Jeff Cousins of Optus afterwards saying that what happened was supposed to happen. What does that mean? That like the it was supposed to collapse. That was part of the... the... Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, the whole thing collapsed in a couple of years, so maybe you were right. <laughs> but I mean, I guess it, it put the Optus float on TV and gave it extra coverage that it wouldn't have got if everything went right. So, you know, maybe there's method to Cousins' <laughs> madness. What better publicity than a ludicrous paper mache television... <laughs> looking thing that falls apart if you want to instill confidence in your brand it did delay the start of the second half by at least six minutes as uh, (laughs) ground staff were forced to clear out the debris so manly went into the game as strong favorites and this is another one where i remember it as just it was a lay down misere that manly were going to win i didn't really have any faith in the bulldogs at all and reading you know reports in the lead up that was the general vibe but again, in big league, Tony McGahey said, the bookmakers have installed Manly as 7-4 to four on favourites. I don't agree. I think it's about the best even money bet I've seen in years. So he was kind of against the grain. But, I mean, it was right there. Like, it's easy in hindsight, but you could see that, like, Canterbury were the informed team. 
You can never underestimate doing it for the legend player, though, Ravili. Mm. And so Canterbury in the dressing room were especially confident. So uh, Chris Anderson's quote was, it was incredible. I've seen teams focus that much for one game, but not over a period of five weeks. The dressing room was so focused every week. Everyone got that feeling. Everyone knew they were going to play well. Not thought, they just knew they were going to play well. I knew on the Monday of the grand final that we were going to beat Manly. They always say that in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we had the same thing in 1994 yeah. with Canberra. So you can't read too much into it. But watching them play like over the course of that four weeks, like that's exactly how it was. Like, No, no. Like I think you're spot on, but it's just you always hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, onto the game itself. And it was overall a pretty underwhelming game in that I don't think either side played particularly well. Manly were never really in it. Canterbury, like, it was the same kind of smothering defence, but they didn't need to be as good as they had been in previous weeks. I think smothering is the best word again. It's just like they stifled Manly, like even with Cliffy. Cliffy was doing his best, too, mm. was doing his best to, to make create stuff and Cliffy's kicking game, that sort of thing, and a few of the back rowers, but they were just there all the time to shut it down. Well, one of Manly's best opportunities actually, you know, brings into focus the discussion we had earlier about Cliffy and Terry Lamb, where... You know, from out of nowhere, Cliff Lyons puts in a little grubber uh, and then, you know, has a second go. It looked like he was going to go through and score this brilliant individual try. For all money. Uh, and then who swoops on it? But Terry Lamb, who's just yeah. right place, right time, picks up the ball, gets the dogs out of danger. You know, it was a classic comparison between the two of them. I think that right place, right time narrative on Lamb really undersells how much anticipation the guy's got because he's got legs shorter than a dachshund <laughs> and then he somehow he's always there. So his anticipation is just like otherworldly. Yeah. Early in the game, he was sinned in for a professional foul, which uh, it was the classic thing like... That's not his go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, making that sacrifice, having the faith that his team could withstand it, which they duly did. But beyond the you know the obvious storylines, the the big talking point from the actual match was the refereeing drama with the dogs scoring off a fairly obvious forward pass early on, and then their next try coming on the seventh tackle. <laughs> How many times has that happened? Like you and I have always defended referees, always, always, always against the knee yep. jerk, stupid fan stuff. But there's not really any excuse in a grand final to not count the tackle count correctly. I don't understand how it happens. Like, aren't you calling out each tackle? Like, how do you stuff that up? I'm sure it's easily done, but you just, you got to not do it in the grand final. Yeah, yeah, you got to not do it in the grand final. I, I think it is probably the most egregious refereeing error in a grand final. Also, the touch judge is not seeing the forward pass. I mean, Ward was right there anyway, Eddie Ward. But yeah. So that was the era when touch judges would come streaming onto the field, it seemed like, to get involved over nothing. Mm. And then when there was something to be ruled on, they would be as silent as a mouse. That seemed to happen yeah. all the time in that era. Yeah. See, the forward pass one I'm willing to kind of, like, it's not as big an issue for me. Like, forward passes get called and sometimes they don't get called. It seems to be one of those things that happens. I mean, that was a particularly bad one. Like, that was almost a penalty in an era where penalties for intentional forward passes was still given yeah it was really bad yeah <laughs> but then Gus goes even though it was a forward pass it was still a great ball from Jimmy Dimmitt yeah. <laughs> uh, but just before we move on from the referees the talk about the refs in the lead up to the game did include one of my favorite refereeing cliches of that era uh, where it was said that 
Eddie Ward is the referee. That means a wide 10 metres. <laughs> you could put together every physicist from Einstein onwards and you wouldn't be able to do the maths on how you can stretch 10 metres from 8 to 12. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, besides the refereeing, like, the best team clearly won. And Bozo, the man who would put referees under cement trucks, in the aftermath, he came out and said that the best team won, you know. So, like, looking back, I don't think the refereeing cast the shadow that it did in the immediate aftermath. I think you can say the best team won, but still, you're on the back foot in the grand final. It's yeah. like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's bad. But, like, my takeaway is that they were never really in it. There was just something missing from their game. I don't think it was that bad. I think they were close enough if they were good enough type thing. Mm. They were just outplayed. Where do you rank it like among grand finals? Like, What were your thoughts watching it? Watching it back, I think it was a pretty pedestrian game. I preferred some of the semis yeah. as a spectacle. Yeah, yeah. But that, yeah. that happens most years, to be honest. But yeah, um, yeah. for me, I didn't like both sides. And it just wasn't that 95 year was just a bit of a... Yeah, with all the Super League drama and whatever, and mm. my age, it was just a bit of an anomaly. Yeah, it was for me at the time because it was the first year probably since I'd, you know, become an active rugby league fan that I didn't have a team to go for in the grand final because I hated both teams. Mm. Yeah, looking back on it, I wish I paid more attention to 95. Mm. But yeah, one of the great semi-final series, really uh, enjoyed watching those games. I think that's testament to what you said earlier about the haves and have-nots. Like the semi-final series was the focal point for everybody. Yeah, yeah. All the good teams were playing each other as opposed mm. to the regular season. But whereas now, in modern era, every round's got some good matchups. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Uh, so let's turn to the presentation or the Rothmans farewell party. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what were your thoughts of that? I've never seen so much ball washing. <laughs> for any company ever that sponsored anything like it's just despicable the links between the cigarettes and rugby league so rothmans were presented with the game ball encased in glass uh as thanks for their service to the game that they roped in arthur summons and and proven, well, proven to, to i know it. i know i hated that uh the rothmans exec who made a speech said we're no longer involved with the game through circumstances beyond our control but we will always be with the game in spirit <laughs> i thought arco was actually quite restrained in uh you know in the way he's talked about him in previous years i was going oh hang on what's he going to say here but he kept it in check well i thought he was quite gushing personally but <laughs> i mean the fact that they're going to be with us in spirit like by from 1980 to 95, there's already people that have started dying from 1980 that took up cigarettes. Uh, so that eventually made way for the, uh, you know, the traditional player speeches. I, I love that Terry Lamb started his uh, speech with, I'd just like to start by saying to my father-in-law, Ted, open that bottle of port, mate. You deserve it now. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Is there a more 80s slash 90s rugby league drink than port? <laughs> But, of course, with every grand final, there's a meeting and a party. I want to start with the meeting. Quite devastating for some of the Manly players. Ian Roberts apparently not moving for half an hour, just sitting down on, on the ground. It's good to see, like, um, is Roberts sort of went off the game, you know, post-Super mm. League. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to see that he had his heart in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Mark Carroll was in the dressing room 
devastated, which leads to another classic Matthew Ridge quote. So I'll just read this. I come off the field and trudge back to the changing rooms. Mark Carroll's in there just bawling his eyes out. Mark's so passionate about his league. He's sobbing his heart out. Hoo-hoo, ah-hoo. He sounds like a demented moose. And I can't help (laughs) laughing at him. (laughs) i'm standing in the corner and i'm thinking get serious mate we've just lost a game i'm actually pissed off with him shut up i think you're making a dick of yourself but then it hits me who am i to judge a guy by the way he reacts to losing something he's probably dreamed about it all his life this book is stream of consciousness but he goes on to say that he had a delayed reaction to the grand final loss and it actually hit him in the weeks and months ahead, you know, he'd wake up in the night in sweats about it. And he really has a way with words. Uh, the way he put it was, it's like finally discovering the Holy Grail after years of searching, only to find when you take a sip that someone else has got there first and pissed in it. <laughs> Can we just analyse the fact twice he's specified the type of crying that the teammates were doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. I love it. I love it too. And that leaves us to Canterbury. And once again, it was all about Terry Lamb with all the players coming out in the aftermath saying that they just wanted to do it for Terry. Lamb himself, you know, talked about the spirit between the club and the Super League context with everything going on with the Filthy Four, saying, I hope something can be worked out. Whatever happens, they're welcome to stay. You don't pull together like this for nothing. What about Crackers? Yeah, well, he was the notable exception. I think we've covered that story enough, and that is pretty much where the chapter ends. It's a really enjoyable recap that season, mate. I, um, yeah, as I said earlier, I'd, I really wish I had more memories of it. It was good to go over it, and thanks again to Sea Eagles Fan YouTube channel for doing all that work for everybody to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. So once again, that's our recommendation for the week. The Sea Eagles Fan YouTube channel with that full three and a half hour compilation of the 1995 season. Most of the semi-final games are on YouTube as well. You can watch them in full. So uh, some thoroughly entertaining games throughout that series. Definitely, I would recommend the Canberra-Canterbury game uh, and the Canterbury-St. George game too. Absolute crackers. Uh, But yeah, in the end, like quite an interesting year on the field, forgetting about everything that happened off-field. Testament to rugby league people that with all the turmoil off the field, they still managed to sort it out on the field and have a good season. Yeah, agreed. Uh, So that is this chapter and that is this season. I want to thank everyone so much for getting on board our little journey of discovery it's a lot of work but it's something that means a lot to both of us and it'd be hard to go on with it if not for all the support we've gotten from all the listeners throughout the past year or so so i just wanted to really thank you all so much for being a part of this i second that motion it's a wonderful community we've got the rld uh people i want to thank you mate on behalf of the listeners for all your hard work because you're there researching like a clockwork orange when you've got the eyes held open with the pics you know losing your mind at times so thank you very much likewise mate (laughs) i couldn't do it without you but i will be you know unstrapping myself from that torture chair for just a week or so i really need to debrief and just exhale but i will then be getting hard at work with the research for season two which will cover the 1996 and 1997 seasons 
And then our third and final season, we'll look at 1998 and beyond. So looking at the reunification of the game and the continued ramifications of Super League. So we will be taking a break from the narrative, from releasing these chapters. We're not going away, though. We've been uh, behind the scenes discussing some really exciting ways of keeping shows coming to you. Uh, You can look forward to some really interesting episodes in the weeks uh, and months ahead. But that is it for tonight. So uh, just thanks again. Would love to hear what you thought about this or any of our previous chapters. Uh, the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, please tell your friends. Uh, they've now got a full season of chapters that they can make their way through. Uh, so we will speak to you soon. Toodaloo. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.